Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager here at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan. And here, Jordan's going to be at the end of Genesis chapter 41 and the beginning of chapter 42, where the crisis arrives for Joseph. This involves both the famine in the land and his confrontation with his brothers. Before we jump in, we do invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel with that link there in the show notes. And on that channel, you can expect weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. And we are right now wrapping up a series on psalm singing with Alistair Roberts. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here is James Jordan in Genesis chapter 41 and 42. Last time we were in Genesis 41, and we had looked at all of it except for what's on page 197, where we find that Joseph is given these new names. Joseph has been put in charge of everything. He has ascended from his death, so to speak, and now he's at the right hand of God. Pharaoh is a manifestation of God, supposedly, that's what they believed, and of course that's not true in any absolute sense, but in that he is the ruler of Egypt and Joseph ascends to his right hand, that's a type or a picture of Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. And in verse 45, I'll read verses 45 and 46, we'll just pick up here. Pharaoh called Joseph's name Safanath paneah which he has translated here, the God speaks and he lives. And he gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Yosef went out over the land of Egypt. And Yosef was 30 years old when he stood in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Yosef went out from Pharaoh's presence, and he passed through all the land of Egypt. Zephanath Paneah, we don't actually know what it means. We're looking at Egyptian words here. And one of the questions that comes, of course, it's always answered the same way nowadays, is when you have a word that seems to be Egyptian, even though it's Egyptian, should you translate it as if it were a Hebrew word, because this is in Hebrew scripture, and on the assumption that God intended for Hebrew readers to read it and translate it in terms of that, or should you say, no, no, that's not possible, we need to figure out what the Egyptian words would be and go back to that. Everybody always answers it now by saying, you've got to figure out the Egyptian word. But, of course, in spite of everything, we don't know all that much about ancient Egyptian. We can translate some things and other things we can't, and we as editorial there, because I can't do any of it. They think that it means God speaks and he lives, which would be appropriate because Joseph is coming back to life here. And, in fact, as I said, the Pharaoh is sort of the one who speaks for God in some ways, and so the God speaks, Pharaoh speaks, and Joseph is brought to life from the pit, from being in prison. Or, from our perspective, the God who is behind Pharaoh, Elohim, who superintends history, has brought this about and is working through Pharaoh. If that's what it means, and we can't know for absolute certain. Pharaoh himself is converted, so since Pharaoh gives the name, He would be saying, your God has spoken. 
Elohim has spoken. Elohim has given these dreams to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh has submitted to Elohim's words, Elohim's information. And so Elohim speaks, and the result is that Joseph is brought to life again. That would be Pharaoh's meaning, if this translation is correct. And then it says, Pharaoh gave him Asenath. That means belonging to Neth, who is one of the goddesses. And she's the daughter of Potiphar Ra, or Re, as it Apparently, the Egyptians would have said it. It's why it's sometimes written R-E. That's the sun god, Ra or Re. I'm told Re is better, and that's why it's written R-E sometimes. But at any rate, this means given by Re or Ra. And he's the priest of An. An is the city that the Greeks called Heliopolis, which means the city of the sun. And in Jeremiah 43:13, that's what it's called, sun city. In Hebrew. Well, who are these people? At first blush, this is a daughter of a pagan priest, of a pagan god. But at the same time, I think we just have to read through this to say all of these people are accepting Elohim as their high god and are in the process of converting. They're in the process of bringing their own beliefs under those of the truth. And so whatever lesser spirits there are, which they might respect, they're coming to see them dwindle in importance before Elohim. Exactly what's going on here, we can't know. But it's intermarriage with the Gentiles, and in a context in which the Gentiles are converting, rather than in a context where the faithful are giving up their beliefs as they get involved with the pagans. There's a little chiasm here in the next phrases. Joseph went over the land of Egypt. Joseph stood in Pharaoh's presence. Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence. Joseph passed through the land of Egypt. He was 30 years old, and that's an important thing to notice here. 30 is the age of moving into authority in one's calling. That's seen throughout the Bible. You can apprentice before 30, but it's not to your 30 that you're supposed to have some independent authority, and that's when the kings, David was 30, the priests don't take up full responsibility until they're 30, and of course Jesus, not until he's 30. It's a good rule. Passing through the land of Egypt, going over the land of Egypt, is a sign of dominion over it. And that's enough on that. Now we come to the years of plenty in verses 47 and 49. In the seven years of abundance, the land produced in handfuls. And he collected all provisions from those seven years that occurred in the land of Egypt. In other words, he took up everything, everything that was left over. And placed provisions in the towns. And provisions from the fields of a town surrounding it, he placed in it. So he, it was kind of a localized thing. What you took up from the surrounding fields, you put in a given town. And Yosef piled up grain like the sand of the sea, exceeding much until they had to stop counting, for it was uncountable. Well, that's all pretty plain, and there's nothing mysterious about what's written here. There's a stress on this superabundance, and the one thing that commentators point out that I think is probably valid is that the use of the idiom, like the sand of the sea, reminds us of the Abrahamic promise. Your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. And the next thing that we read about is the sons who were born to Joseph. So... There's kind of a segue here conceptually. We get grain like the sand of the sea, and then Joseph starts to have kids 
the same symbol in the Bible is used for both things, having children and lots of grain. Joseph's sons, we're told about them in verses 50 to 52. He's settling in and he has a new life before he has to go back and deal with his old one. Now two sons were born to Yosef before the year of famine came, whom Asenath, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him. Yosef called the name of the firstborn Menashe, or Manasseh in English, he who makes forget, meaning, God has made me forget all my hardships, all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, double fruit, and that's that Ayim or Ayin sound in Hebrew always indicates a dual. Two hands, anything that's doubled, Ayin or Ayim is the sound. So when you see that, the name for Mesopotamia is Aram Naharayim. Aram of the two Nahars, two rivers. Nahar means river, Naharayim is two rivers, double river, Tigris and Euphrates. So Ephraim, double fruit, doubly fruitful. Now I've got two kids. My wife's been doubly fruitful. Meaning, God has made me bear fruit in the land of my affliction. So the name is given, which has a certain meaning, and then what Joseph had in mind is given as well. And Manasseh means forgetting the past. Ephraim means enjoying the present and looking to the future. There's kind of even a progression in the two names here. And so we know that Joseph is happily ensconced where he is. He's actually forgotten something. We should have time to get into the next chapter here. Joseph has forgotten the dreams that he had when he was 17, where his brothers bowed down to him. He's forgotten that. Probably he could be reminded of it. It's in his memory somewhere. But it's not an active memory. That's over with. Now he's got a happy life in Egypt. And that's why in the next chapter, when the brothers come before him, it says Joseph remembers this dream. If he had remembered it, he would realize that there is unfinished business. God had some kind of a plan involving the brothers and where the brothers were going to bow down to Joseph. And that plan hasn't come to pass yet. So Joseph might have borne that in mind and remembered it, but why should he? There's no opportunity for it to come to pass, and so he happily forgets it. And it's only when God decides to bring those dreams to pass that God reminds Joseph of them. And for now, he can forget it. So that's, in a sense, the major thing he is forgetting, and there's nothing wrong with forgetting it. Because he couldn't do anything about it anyway. Just leave it be. If God wants to remind me of it, he will. And eventually he does. And now we come to the climax of the years of famine. It's a passage with a lot of music in it. It's worth hearing. And there came to an end the seven years of abundance that had occurred in the land of Egypt. And there began to come the seven years of famine, as Yosef had said. And famine occurred in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And all the land of Egypt felt the famine, and the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Go to Yosef, whatever he says to you, do it. And the famine was over all the face of the land. And Yosef opened all where there was grain and gave out rations to the Egyptians. And the famine was becoming stronger in the land of Egypt. 
And all lands came to Egypt to buy rations to Joseph, for the famine was strong in all lands. Now the word land and the word all each occur eight times here. They're just repeated over and over and over again. So that we see two things. Number one, Joseph's in charge of everything. And number two, Joseph's dominion is over all the lands of the earth. All the lands of the earth are in trouble, not just Egypt. And Joseph is in charge of providing bread for all of the lands of the entire surface of the earth. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, the people from Australia came there. But it means within the horizon of what all lands means, in this context, it was everywhere. And exactly how far that extends is not something we need to worry about. Typologically, of course, Jesus ascends to heaven and he's over all the earth. And he provides bread and wine, of course, also to all the earth. And that's the larger fulfillment of what is here. But that's intending to tell us something about Joseph's ascension to power. He has dominion not over Egypt, but indirectly over all the earth. And, of course, that sets us up for the next thing that happens. And there is a nice structure here. If you look at it, there are really three panels here from verse 54 to 57. A, B, and C, as I have it, tells us that there's famine in all the lands. And first of all, well, there was bread in Egypt and all the land of Egypt felt the famine. When we get to the end of this paragraph, the famine was strong in Egypt. All lands came to Egypt and famine was strong in all the lands. So it starts out there was famine, and then at the end of the paragraph, the famine has become much worse. That would be, mark that for one point. And then at the center is the statement that they cry out to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, go to Joseph. Now that's real important because that's at the heart of the next chapter. And it's something that's already happened once. It's kind of hidden from view. But now we're going to see big time this business of asking Pharaoh. And basically, Pharaoh is not the one with the answer. And so when we come to chapter 42, that will be at the center of the chapter. And it's a long chapter, and I want to read the middle of it, and then we'll start to exegete it, because if we read the whole thing, it'll be rather long, and you're basically familiar with it. But to begin with, Jacob sends his sons to Egypt because they need bread. And at the end of the chapter, they come back and report to him. So if you have a narrative where you're sent somewhere, and you go there and you come back, you're naturally going to fall into some type of a chiasm, and that's almost trivial. But, as a matter of fact, the center of this chapter does use repeated themes in such a way that the writer wants us to focus on that structure and get something out of it. So Jacob sends his sons, they make a journey to Egypt, and they have an initial conversation with Joseph. And then we come to the center of it, which we'll read. And then after this central section... The brothers converse with each other, and Joseph hears what they have to say, and then they have a journey back from Egypt where they discover the silver is in their sacks, and then they report back to Jacob and say, this scary guy met us and sent our silver back, and he demands that we send Benjamin along with us next time, and all this stuff when they get back. Now, at the center, in verses 15a to 20, we have repeated ideas and phrases arranged in such a way that our attention is focused toward the center of a passage. And 
I've pointed out to you a lot of times, a lot of these narratives and others have chiastic structures, but it's not always theologically important. It's always interesting to notice how a passage is written. It helps you to read the Bible. It helps you to see the flow of what's going on there. It helps you to remember a passage if you see it. But sometimes there are theological ideas that you would probably miss if you didn't see the structure. And I think this is one of them. Reading the commentators, I think a lot of them, well, all of them, have missed the main point of what's going on here. And the reason they miss it is that they don't see this structure. So I want to highlight it because this is where we get some payoff from looking at literary structure. And I'll start reading in verse 15 and read to verse 20. And if you want, just follow along the outline here and notice the flow. Joseph says, Hereby shall you be tested as Pharaoh lives. You shall not depart from here unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you to fetch your brother while you remain as prisoners. In this way will your words be tested, whether there is truth in you or not. As Pharaoh lives, you certainly are spies. Now we come to the center. He removed them into custody for three days. And Joseph said to them on the third day, now we start to move back out. Do this and live, for I fear God. That's no longer as Pharaoh lives, but as Elohim lives. Now we come back to the test. Verse 19, if you are honest... And now everything is reversed. Let one of your brothers be held prisoner in the house of your custody. And as for you, the rest of you, go and bring back rations for the famine supply for your households. And then bring your youngest brother back to me so that your words will be proven truthful and you will not die. And they prepared to do so. So you can see that thematically and even in terms of certain key words... Our attention is focused to this three days in prison and then coming back out on the third day. Now, what changes in between those things? A couple of things change. First of all, before they went into prison, Joseph had said, all of you stay in prison, one of you gets to live and go home. On the other side, it's all of you get to go home, one of you stays in prison. So, one of you dies, all of you live. Before that time, all of you die, only one of you lives. The other thing, and more important thing, is before their three days, the statement is twice, as Pharaoh lives. Pharaoh is the God, so to speak. Pharaoh is in charge of life and death. And when Pharaoh is in charge of life and death, they die. On the other side of this, it's not Pharaoh anymore. He doesn't say, oh, I've changed my mind, as Pharaoh lives. He says, I fear Elohim. Elohim is now in charge, and with Elohim in charge, there's a new opportunity for life. Do this and live. Pharaoh dispenses life and death. We have three days of death in custody, and then on the other side of that, the resurrection side, Elohim provides opportunity for life if they obey Joseph. Now, what's behind this? Well, Joseph has been through the same thing. We didn't notice it at the time, but now we have to. In Genesis chapter 40, when Joseph is in prison, what does he say? He says to the cupbearer, Please keep me in mind when it goes well with you. Pray deal kindly with me and call me to mind to Pharaoh and get me out of his house. Joseph makes an appeal to Pharaoh. Does it work? No. 
he stays in prison for two more years. When he finally gets a chance to speak to Pharaoh, what does he say? Pharaoh, please, I was unjustly put in here by my brothers. No. He appeals strictly to Elohim and basically challenges Pharaoh to change his religion. What's happened to Joseph? Joseph has stopped appealing to Pharaoh and he started appealing to Elohim. And in between, he remains in prison for three years. In other words, time to think about it and shift his appeal. Well, what about these brothers? Well, they've gone down to Egypt to get bread. Who are they appealing to? They're appealing to Pharaoh. Can they find life and bread if they appeal to Pharaoh? No. They have to shift their appeal. And they have to appeal to Elohim and not to Pharaoh. Now, that's all implied here, but it's clear in the structure. After this three days of death and resurrection, we shift from Pharaoh's life being the Lord of life and death to Elohim being the Lord of life and death and Joseph being his representative. Pharaoh himself knows this because when all the land of Egypt felt the famine and the people cried out to Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, I'm no longer the Lord of life and death. I can't help you. Go to Joseph. Joseph will help you. We're in the new covenant now, guys, and I'm no longer in charge. Pharaoh is no longer supervising things. Pharaoh presides over the old order, but it is failing And only Elohim provides a way into the future, provided that men shift their allegiance to him and obey his representatives. So that's what we have going here, this insistence that they shift their faith. Now that's part of the problem the brothers have. Of course, their blindness is because of their sin. And when we look at the whole passage, we'll see larger aspects of that as well. They're still fighting among themselves. They're estranged from their father. They are condemned because of what they did to Joseph. All of these things prevent them from putting their trust in Elohim, with the result that when they get in trouble, they're looking to Pharaoh for help. And that's not necessarily always wrong. I mean, we'll discuss that in just a second. But it's wrong if that's the only thing you're doing. Number two here I've got down. The brothers came to Egypt for bread, appealing to Pharaoh. And this results in three days of death. They must now shift their appeal to Elohim. Compare what Pharaoh himself has said in 4155. I've already done that. Pharaoh said, don't come to me for bread. Go to Joseph. You see, Pharaoh was in charge of the bread. And his administration has given out. It used to work. It used to be that every year Pharaoh would supervise the Nile and the sun. The bread would come up and Egypt would prosper. It did work. There was an old covenant that did work. But now it doesn't work anymore because it's time for things to change. And Elohim has now got to become the God, and Joseph has got to be put in charge. So Pharaoh recognizes that. Pharaoh recognizes the coming of the new covenant. He's not like the Jews in Jesus' day who persecuted the church because they didn't want things to change. Pharaoh, it's okay with him for things to change, and for him no longer to be in charge and Joseph to be in charge. But now this truth has to be brought home to the brothers. Let's see, I've also got here, notice in chapter 40 that Joseph appealed to Pharaoh for deliverance, but the cupbearer forgot him. When you appeal to Pharaoh, you don't get life. Under the old order, you can only get a temporary kind of reprieve or death. You can't get any real change. 
After two more years, Joseph is ready to appeal to Elohim, not to Pharaoh, and that's what he does. When he stands before Pharaoh, he doesn't conceal anything, as we saw last week. He says, God has told Pharaoh what to do, and if you're smart, Pharaoh, you'll listen to God, and he'll stop fooling around with these other gods, and so forth and so on. Joseph is no longer appealing to Pharaoh. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that it's always wrong to appeal to Pharaoh? No, because Paul appealed to Caesar. It's a question of what is uppermost in your mind. And here we have, at the beginning of the Bible, what the Bible starts simple and it gets more and more complex as it goes along because certain principles have to be established. And this story is designed to establish very clearly the basic principle that the state doesn't provide bread and security. Only God can do that. It's not the state... It's not the old order, it's not politics, it's not Pharaoh, it's not that whole complex of things. It can't provide it. Only God can provide it. And so if you look to Pharaoh for these things, you're going to be disappointed because it can only provide death. Now that's the basic principle. What do we draw from that? Do we draw mechanically that you can never go and get food stamps if you're in a disastrous situation? No, that's not what we would draw from it, I don't think. We draw a principle from it that if you are stuck in that type of situation and God is giving you bread through the hand of some agent of the government, you're never confused about what's really going on. If we had 20 impoverished families come into our little church here, we wouldn't have enough money to take care of them. And so we could authorize them to get bread from Caesar because that's the way things are right now. It's not the ideal way. It's not the best way to organize charity in society. But it's the way it is right now. So you can take advantage of that, you can make use of it, but you have to understand that you're not looking to Pharaoh, you're looking to Elohim. And Elohim may provide to you through Egypt, but you don't look to Egypt, you look to Elohim. They are going to get bread from Egypt. That's true enough. The bread isn't going to fall out of the sky like manna. And I get the impression that what they should have done is said, well, we trust you, Lord, you said you give us bread, we pray give us this day our daily bread, and... We're not going to go to these Egyptians for bread. No, never. We'll just wait for manna. No, they don't do that. But if they're going to go to Egypt, they have to understand that it's not really Egypt. It's God who's providing through Egypt. That's the way a Christian who is impoverished would have to approach anything. Now, as we'll see, Jacob understands this. And what Jacob does is he says, take money and go down there and buy it. Because if you buy it, you're not beholden to them. They give you grain, but you give them money. But now what's bad is that when they come back, they come back with the money too. And it turns out it was given free. Well, now you're in trouble, see. Because if you've gotten it free, that's much more dangerous. Because you may be becoming beholden to the people who gave it to you. And the covenant needs to be free and independent of owing anything to the state owing anything to the pagans, owing anything to Pharaoh. And of course, Jacob doesn't know that Pharaoh's converted, that Joseph's in charge of Egypt. And the thought that he's going to owe anything to these pagans is very frightful. So that's the center of the narrative, and that's where we're going. All of what we're going to read for the next several chapters, the next several weeks, is going to be a process whereby these brothers are brought to repentance. But the heart of it is set out right here. They have to stop trusting Pharaoh and trust in Elohim. And that's 
a pivot that opens up all the other things that are going to have to go on with them. So, that's the center of the passage, and I think we'd miss it if we didn't have the chiastic structure in mind, if we didn't see Joseph's shift from threatening them with Pharaoh as Lord of life and death to telling them about Elohim as Lord of life and death. Well, we can start the passage, and we can do the first two verses, I think, and then we'd better quit. Jacob sends his sons. Now when Jacob saw that there were rations in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at one another? Or better, why are you fighting with each other? And he said, Behold, I've heard there are rations in Egypt. Go down there and buy us rations from there so we may live and not die. Now this sets up all the things in the passage. First of all, it's the name Jacob and not Israel. And that's always important. We have to observe always which name is used. Jacob means the man as an individual. Israel means the man as the captain of this covenant people. Well, Jacob is not the captain of the covenant people because the covenant people is destroyed. In chapter 37, we started out with Israel. Israel sends Joseph to his brothers. Joseph reports back to Israel. Then Israel makes a long tunic for Joseph. And Israel sends Joseph to his brothers to find out what's going on. And then the brothers sell him off into slavery and they come back to Jacob. And Jacob is upset. And Jacob blames them. And Jacob basically says, you should have watched out for him. This shouldn't have happened. And Jacob refuses to be comforted. Why? Because the father is now estranged from the sons. They're no longer a community. A community of Israel where the head of that community is also called Israel. Just like the church. The church is the body of Christ. So the church is Christ. And when Paul uses the word Christ, as often as not, he means not just Jesus, but the church as well. When he uses the word Jesus, he means Jesus as an individual. But when Paul talks about Christ, very often, if you look at it, he is implying not just Jesus as an individual, but all the people who are united to him and one with him. Israel and Jacob have the same meaning. When Jacob is used, it means the individual. When Israel is used, it means him and the people with him. Well, Israel is not used here because Jacob is estranged from his sons. And he's still estranged from them and he's going to continue to be estranged from them until Judah offers to die for Benjamin. When that happens, the word Israel recurs because that shows us that the sons are repenting. And we're not there yet. That's a couple of chapters away. Well, it's in the next chapter. The situation is still that way. There is no unity between Jacob and his sons, and so the name Jacob is used and not Israel. Jacob cannot be Israel as long as this situation continues. There can be no nation of Israel. The covenant is threatened, and that's the larger problem here. The covenant's about to be destroyed. We're supposed to minister to the nations, but we can't because the covenant's destroyed. The sons are estranged from the father, and they're estranged from each other. And that's the other thing that's said in verse 1. This says, why do you keep looking at each other? Why are you staring at each other? Literally, that's correct. But this particular voice of this particular Hebrew verb is always used for combat. Everywhere it's used, everywhere else in the Bible, it's two enemies facing each other. David facing Goliath. Well, I don't remember if that is used there. But it's used in combat situations. And so clearly what this means is... What are you guys sitting around staring at each other for? I mean, what's the point? What it means is, why are you fighting with each other? 
Why are you opposed to each other? And of course they are. They're all hungry. Their wives are complaining to them. Their kids are complaining to them. And they're getting on each other's nerves. Brother-brother strife is part of our nature. It's going to happen anyway because we're sinners. And outward pressure makes it flare up. And of course, that's where we left these guys. At the end of chapter 37, they killed Joseph or sold him into slavery. Symbolically killed him. Someday I'm going to stop apologizing for saying Joseph died and was killed because by now you know exactly what I mean by that. That symbolically he was and psychologically and all the other ways except the most literal sense he was. They've killed him. Joseph's dead. They fight each other. And now they're fighting with each other more. It just continues because it's not resolved. That's where we left them. Where we left them, Jacob is estranged from his sons. Where we left them, they're the kind of brothers who murder each other. And then we pick the narrative back up. There we are again. We're in the same situation. These two things have got to be resolved. And they're going to be, of course. Jacob will become Israel again. And the brothers will stop fighting with each other. As a matter of fact, one of the last things Joseph says to them is, don't fight with each other. I think that's in chapter 50. Well, I don't remember it right now. No, it's after he gives them food and reveals himself to them. I think we can find this. He sends them home. And he says, don't be agitated on the journey. Chapter 45, verse 24. Don't fight with each other on the journey. It's been resolved. But that still has to happen at this point. This is where we started off. Well, verse 2, he says, I've heard there are rations. Go down there and buy it. I've already commented on that. Paying for grain will not make Jacob beholden to Egypt for grace. When the money is returned, the danger is that pagan Egypt is becoming the provider and the God for the people. And then he says, do it so that we may live and not die. This business of living and not dying is all over this passage. Because as we've seen at the center of it is this statement, as Pharaoh lives, as Pharaoh lives, you are spies, which is exactly what they are, as we'll see next week. And then Joseph says, do this and live. If you bring your brother back, you will live and not die. And then when they get back to the end of the story, Jacob says, oh, you're bringing my gray hairs down to Sheol. I'm about to die. Now Simeon is gone. You want to take Benjamin away from me. In other words, death, 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 death. All this death stuff comes up at the end of the chapter. It's death that's hanging over them. They're likely to starve. And also all these other aspects of death as well, losing your sons and so forth. So go down there so that we may live and not die. As we get to the end of this first part of the story in chapter 42, that's not what's happened. (laughs) They go down to Egypt, and the result is not life instead of death. The result is more death. Simeon is left behind, and they want Benjamin. And everything is much worse, it seems. It seems. And the brothers themselves, when they go down to Egypt, so that they may live and not die, they're thrown into a pit for three days. So they're thrown into death. So these phrases here at the beginning of the narrative are setting up the concerns. Jacob versus his sons, strife in the family, buying the grain versus getting it free and what that means, the loss of liberty that comes if you're getting free things instead of paying for it, and the question of life and death right here in these first two verses. Those will be central throughout the narrative, and they'll return again at the end. We'll have to look at that next week. The main thing to take away from today's lesson is the central idea of the narrative, and that is that there is an old covenant which is under law, which is under Pharaoh, 
And under that old situation, yes, things are starving out. And when you go and you try to find salvation in the old way and under Pharaoh, it only results in more death. And there has to be a resurrection and a shifting to the new order of things, which is under Elohim, which is under Joseph, where there is an opportunity for life if you repent. And so that's what has to happen. Joseph says, you can find life in a new covenant, in a new situation, if you repent. And so we're going to have some tests to give you opportunities to repent. And if that's obscure now, it's going to become clearer and clearer because that's what the next several chapters are all about. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.